Now, the thing is, when you do that, which is already hard to do, and about 20% of companies do that only, but when you do that successfully, you very quickly hit diminishing returns. And so the second part of the model is that actually there is no funnel. You know, it's like in the matrix. There is no funnel. <laughs> there is no matrix. What do you think about when you think about, like when you think outside the funnel, when you think, actually, in fact, when I talk to engineering audiences, I ask them, like, tell me, what is a perfect funnel? Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years. It takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate. Today, we've got an incredible interview planned. We have the French investor, S.C. Moati. She's in San Francisco. She is crushing it with Mighty Capital. You've done a ton in terms of product background, product leader at Facebook. She's on the board of Opera, EA Sports, Nokia. You worked there previously. And now she's teaching user acquisition and quite a bit of other things at Stanford. I wanted to get you on the program because you've got interesting background. I think you even run a meetup, don't you? I do. I run one of the largest networks of early adopters in the world. It's called Products That Count. What is your story? What? How did you get here? Because it's a very unique background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here, by the way. Thanks for hosting me. Thanks for coming. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in Europe, grew up in France, and moved to California to get my MBA at Stanford like an eternity ago. Spent a dozen years building product and companies, and sold my last company to Facebook. When I left at Facebook after a couple of years there, I started professionally investing into what became Mighty Capital. And I also started Products That Count, this foundation, which is a, a great, great, great uh, network to be a part of. I'm doing stuff I care about, like teaching and speaking and being on boards. And those are all you know, feeding my investment activities. What I like to invest in are companies that are later stage than you know, typical small Silicon Valley funds. We invest in Series A, Series B, Series C. And what we provide is uh, completely unique because we give you access through that foundation, products that count, uh, we give you access to hundreds of thousands of early adopters. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking to accelerate your path to revenue by selling to people, uh, typically you sell to early adopters when you're an innovative company. And so think about it as like a mega sales accelerator. So that brings up a lot of questions. But the first obvious one I have to ask is, it looks like you have a book with a picture of poop on it. With a picture of? Poop. Somewhere <laughs> top right. Okay. Now there, I, see, I see brown right swirls somewhere up there in the corner. I don't know what I'm seeing. Okay, apparently that's not some type of business book. Back anyway, so your first business, or not necessarily your first business, so you sell a business to Facebook. What were you doing and what was it like selling to Zuck? So what I was doing at Facebook, I was building products there. I was responsible for all the different notification channels. So all the emails, all the SMS, all the push notifications. Oh, you were the uh, evil one see, getting people back to Facebook see, every time. That's you, isn't it? <laughs> what did right. you do before that? Before that, well, you know, I, I built product and services. So when I was at Nokia, I built a, an augmented reality service from the previous generation. I uh, did really, really well, got millions of downloads in the very early, early days of mobile. We were in the top 1% of the app store. And then at EA, I built online and mobile games that were social games. So casual, like... Um, 
you know, Tetris and that kind of stuff. And it was already all about community, right? Like those games, there's no kind of crazy immersive experience. It's all about the people you play with and, and how you build and foster that community. I like it. I like the psychological aspect of getting people involved. You were growth hacking before there was a term for it. Pretty much. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, there's, um, if you think about building communities, there's different ways that you do it. Uh, just like if you think about curating news, there's different ways to do it. Because after all, it's all about like, you know, creating meaningful content for an audience and nurturing that audience. So there's a way that you do it that's very sort of tech driven with algorithms and machine learning and and the wisdom of crowds where you you know vote things up and down and 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 all that stuff and that's not the path that i chose to build communities the the other path is the path of curation where you actually use humans to foster communities so think about think about it as you know do you get your news from an aggregator or do you get your news from the new york times uh, and we're more like the New York Times than like an aggregator when it comes to building communities. How do you, what's the best way to turn that into a business model? So you're, you're aggregating, advertising is a terrible business model typically. How are, you, how are you working not just before, but also I imagine a lot of what you're doing now is helping companies implement strategies so they can get users and scale quickly. How did you think about that previously and how is your, how is your thought process changed or involved? Yes. So... That's a great question, and it's actually a really complex question to unpack. When you think about monetizing communities, it's really hard. And there are examples out there, like you said, right? Like a community at the magnitude and scale of a Facebook is monetized via advertising. Great. Smaller communities often get monetized with consulting. So you, you will find people who have developed a following and they basically turn around and say, well, I can help you make your business successful if you hire me for workshops or different consulting gigs. And that's a, a very effective but not scalable at all way to monetize a community. The way that I'm monetizing my community, which, you know, Product Second is a nonprofit organization, so uh, is, is by, by saying, well, the programs themselves are very much self-funded. People, you know, pay a small fee to participate in our programs. We, we have a lot of companies who want to be attached to what we do. So we have sponsors and that allows us to cover our costs. Now, the way that value is extracted out of the community is through investments. And so typically a company will join products that count or, or let's say at that stage, it's a founder. The founder will join products that count and say, hey, this is a really cool community let me, you know, do a shout out at an event or network with people at the event so that I can, you know, start getting a little bit of product market fit or a few users to test my product. And meanwhile, I'm going to, you know, find ways to grow my team, maybe through this network. And then once I get a little bit more visibility, maybe I've raised a little bit of money and I have some budget, hey, I'm going to want to sponsor some of the events or products I can because it's going to raise my brand. And we have companies doing that. And then once they reach a certain scale, so they're raising like a series A or a series B or even a series C, they come to us and say, look, you know, products that can is actually a strategic partner for us. And so we want you to invest in us so that, you know, if we're really successful, you're going to be very successful too. And that's a lot of what Mighty Capital does. And so it's that curation model where we, you know, as a non-for-profit organization, we foster this community 
we try to develop amazing best practices so companies can build great products through the knowledge that we you know, promote and, and make available for free to everyone. And then once companies become successful, they come to us and they say, I want to give back. I want to be a part of this in a very strategic way. And that's when we get to invest in them. So we get, if you want, the best of both worlds because we already know them. And uh, therefore, we're extremely happy to get involved, support in many, many different ways. They let us put in a little bit of money and we accelerate their success at kind of this acceleration stage. Devil's advocate, why did you choose Series A? So what could be interesting is you've got a community. I imagine you have people running the community. You have smart people that are in charge, people that just start to take charge. Why not give them small amounts of funds and have them scrape through and find the best products, the ones that people are getting the input in and the ones that people are loving? And then put small seed investments, pre-seed investments, so that you guys will really get that scale network effect. Yeah, we, we could do that. I'm not saying we won't do that in the future. But right now, because of our model of curation, if I think about where do we add the most value to a company, it's not at the very early stage. Most of the time, they can make that happen on their own. It's much easier to start a company than it is to make a company be very successful. Myself, my partners, we have done that second part. And so where we're going to invest is where we can add the most value, which is at that later stage. I'm not saying we won't do the pre, 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 seed everything down the line. It's a smart strategy. You, uh, you build it and you have a great system in place. I want to talk and um, pivot a little bit to user acquisition. So it's something that you've done a lot. It's your focus. You're teaching this at Stanford. A, how do you teach a class on user acquisition? <laughs> You're right. It's not very scalable, that part, because the techniques for user acquisition become obsolete the minute they are known, right? That's part of the secret sauce of a great marketing gross product person that they come up with new stuff that offer opportunities for growth before everybody else like follows. So the, the way to teach a class like this is to teach, number one, with some very strong frameworks, and I, I can share some of them with you. Number two, break it down by stage. What you do at early stage is different than what you do at you know, in the mid-growth stage versus late stage. And then number three, you bring a lot of guest speakers because those are the people who are going to have the very latest techniques and tools. And you providing that access is what makes a, a great sort of growth class. Right? It's not about imparting knowledge from, like, from a Bible or so. Especially because once you write the Bible, it's already too old. It's, it's too old, exactly. Even when you write a blog, it's too old in the, in the field of growth. So, you know, the framework that we use is actually building on a lot of the frameworks that are out there around growth hacking. Uh, you mentioned that term earlier. You know, basically, whether you call that lean, agile, growth hacking, whatever the, the term is, it basically is pick a goal, like take a metric and, and a goal, and then put everything that leads towards that goal into a funnel. And then optimize the conversion of that funnel so that, you know, whatever comes into the funnel is more and more and more likely to convert. And that's basically what growth hacking is. Now, the thing is, when you do that, which is already hard to do, and about 20% of companies do that only, but when you do that successfully, you very quickly hit diminishing returns. And so the second part of the model is that actually there is no funnel, you know, it's like in the matrix, there is no funnel, <laughs> there is no matrix. What do you think about when you think about, like when you think outside the funnel, when you think, actually, in fact, when I talk to engineering audiences, I ask them like, tell me, what is a perfect funnel? 
And we go through that little exercise and, and it's like the back and forth, the perfect funnel. Let me ask, ask you, Matt, actually, what is a perfect funnel? A flywheel. So if you're able to get if you're able to get people that bring other people, then you it's an automatic win if you build the flywheel that's, correctly. That's, that's true. But if you think of a mathematical funnel, the perfect funnel is how wide? How wide is it? The, uh, the how wide is it? It's everything, and then it just it's narrows, infinite. It's narrows right? down, yeah. And how deep is it? I mean, if you want to be realistic, you would like to be able to do it as quickly as possible, but it's not going to be yeah, as quickly as possible. It's, it's going to be something longer. Well, so the perfect funnel, right? Like, just play with me for this quick exercise. The perfect funnel is basically like the horizon, right? It's an infinite flat surface. Well, if you think about it this way, if you think like, okay, how do I create experiences that appeal to everybody instantly? That's when you have real disruptive growth strategies. So I'll give you an example. How do I create an experience? Like in, in real estate, I, I, I used to run a real estate business line at, at Trulia. In, uh, in real estate, when people buy a home, they do that on average once every five years. And so if you're Trulia or you're Zillow, then you get a customer through your funnel and you optimize the hell out of that funnel, you convert it to the max, and then they buy from you. And then you're like, okay, see you in five years. That's not a very good user acquisition you know, method, not a great velocity business. But if you instead think about like, if I ask you, do you want to know the value of the house you live in? You'll probably tell me like, yeah, maybe, you know, okay, do you want to know the value of your boss's house? Oh, definitely. <laughs> or your ex-girlfriend's house. Oh, yes, I want to know that information. And not just this week, not just last week, but every day, right? Is it going up or down? And that's going to affect your emotional well-being depending on how you feel about your boss and so on and so forth. And so if you create... What Zillow has created, they call that a Zestimate, which is a slightly inflated value of someone's house and update that every day. You have created a tool that is going to appeal to everybody, whether they are a homeowner or not, because it's not just their house. It's the neighbors, the boss, the, the girlfriend, the boyfriend. So everybody all the time, instantly. And if you can do something like that for a service as, you know, Pardon my French, but as boring as real estate, you can do that for everything. But I think so those are examples of growth strategy. Well, so maybe. Like, <laughs> I mean, you could say the same thing about toilet paper because everyone needs toilet paper or something. But if you look at, there are markets that are more niche where you couldn't apply a similar strategy because by fishing for everyone, you're going to miss the important ones because everyone's not actually going to bite. How do you, how do you analyze that? And how do you, how do you work with founders that you work with? Yes, you're correct about that. So in most industries, having the widest, flattest possible funnel is, is the way to go. In some industries, it isn't. For example, in the finance industry, you don't want to have like 25 people apply for a loan when really only one is the one you care about. And so in that case, you want a funnel that's going to look a lot more like a cylinder than, you know, horizon line. And, you know, there are different techniques you apply to that. I just gave you one that, you know, widens the funnel. Once that flattens your funnel, for example, is, in fact, let me use the real estate again. When you're looking for a house to rent, it's a very, very boring, painful process. Nobody wants to pay rent. Rent is a waste of money in most people's eyes. And by the way, it's very utilitarian, right? You want something that's under a certain budget, but can fit your car, your dog, yourself, your girlfriend. And so when you search for a place to rent, 
you actually don't really care about the details. So what we did is we said, well, you just applied for that one bedroom apartment in this neighborhood with a parking garage. Um, there are four others very similar with the same you know, criteria, same range of rent, one bedroom, a garage in the same neighborhood. Do you want to apply to them? Of course you want to, like, because <laughs> why not? It doesn't matter. Well, guess what? Trulia makes its money based on the number of leads that it sells to property managers. So instead of selling one lead, all of a sudden we sell five leads. The impact on revenue is it gets multiplied by five. <laughs> That's not bad. Just because you ask a simple question that flattens your funnel. So is that that's flattening kind of or bringing that, them back, though? So that you said they've it, already applied. So technically, it's more kind of the bringing back, right? You're, you're so you go. You're you're getting into the optimization there. Like, are you asking just before they apply or just after they have applied? What is the kind of question you ask? How many of those listings is relevant? Do you even ask the question, or do you just have a checkbox saying apply to similar listings nearby? So that's the optimization part. But the, the principle for disruptive growth is if I can, instead of submit one lead, I can submit five at a time, I'm going to multiply my revenue by five. How do you encourage founders to think about it? Because the dynamics of every startup are going to be different. Some of it's going to be you want to upsell people, you want to have longer contracts. Some of it's going to be encouraging people to invite friends. There's a lot of different things. I kind of break this down into two different aspects of acquiring customers and then retaining or upselling customers. Yeah. That's where we get into different stages of growth. And that's a really important point. And the way that I define early stage is most of the users you're acquiring are new users. And then mid-stage is sort of a half and half, half new, half existing. And then later stage is mostly returning users. So let me give you an example. When you're at the early stage, my recommendation to founders is you, you do the basics. First of all, you need to get visibility. So you, you instrument, you do your A-B, A-B testing infrastructure. You make sure you can track everything down the funnel. Once you have a funnel, you slice and dice it and, and you optimize it. You make sure your new user experience is incredibly rewarding. You offer value before you ask for value and so on and so forth. And then at some point, you're going to see diminishing returns once you do all that. And as you see diminishing returns, that means you're entering the second stage, which is you have a lot of returning users in addition to your existing users. And the key theme in that mid-stage is segment and segment by types of users. So in my class, I use a very common segmentation that comes from the world of gaming, uh, whales, dolphins, and minnows, where if, if for your audience, if, if folks are not familiar with what that is, uh, the whales are the people who bring you all your money. They, you know, in gaming, they are the ones who buy the the blue shiny swords uh, of special armor kind of thing. <laughs> the dolphins are your social butterflies. They are the ones who are going to tell all their friends, "Oh, you totally should play that game. You really should it, give it a shot. It's so fun." And the minnows are are just here for the show, right? Like they're they're here. They're, it's like it's cool to be here, but I'm not very helpful. <laughs> and and for each of those three audiences, we look at what are, what are ways you treat those people. The, the whales, you, they bring you all the money, so you do whatever they ask you to do. The dolphins, they're your social butterflies, so you make sure that you give them something positive to say. Give them something to say and something positive to say. And, and then the minnows, you just 
keep them entertained, right? Like give them something to do. So for example, that hook of, uh, you know, the Zestimet in real estate, that's a tool for the minnows. Like you come back all the time, you just hear because it's kind of cool to know the price of real estate in, you know, every every house around the block. And then the later stage, right? Once, once you outgrow that middle stage, you're in that in the later stage where the majority of your users are returning users. And once you reach that stage, you have to think a lot more in terms of ROI, right? Am I acquiring users that are going to make me more money than they cost me? So you have to look at a lifetime value of the customer. How much am I going to get per user? Okay, therefore, I'm going to have to spend less to acquire users so that I can make a profit and so on and so forth. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to the syndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free. Right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, thesyndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. And how do you look at the network effects associated? So, like, a good example of this would be an Airbnb and an Uber. Airbnb has incredible network effects internationally. Uber, I think, has a lot of challenges price-wise because their network effects are local as opposed to international, which means they compete in every locality. So the pricing, how do you de- how do you help startups with evaluating that, especially where... Where they're raising money, venture capital is kind of like a drug. You pour it on things and it helps you go harder, go faster, but it doesn't solve the problem of the unit economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. So the the way that I look at network effects is um, two things, on two comments on that. One is a network effect comes from a marketplace. And a marketplace is basically one side which is the supply side and one side which is the demand side. The key question to answer in the marketplace is which side drives which one? And then the second key question is what is the value, like the unique defensible value of the marketplace? So which side drives each side? For example, there's a common misconception which is that if you take the example of Uber or Lyft, that, oh, you know, it's, it's consumers driving the marketplace. In other words, the more consumer you get, the more successful your business is going to be. Uh, wrong assumption. Most marketplaces are actually driven by the supply side. In other words, if I provide my consumers with, quote unquote, infinite inventory, right, enough inventory that they will perceive that it's great inventory, then my consumers will come. I would totally it's, debate this one. I would totally go the other direction on that. I, I, I can see that. I can see that. It's a common mistake for entrepreneurs. And so, you know, of course, at the beginning, you have to pump that consumer demand a little bit. But if you actually look at the way an Uber or Lyft 
does initiate that pump in different cities, they buy the supply so that they can promote their service to initiate demand. And that's why venture, you know, that's why they need so much VC money. That's why they need so much venture capital money. Because let, let's say they want to expand to, I don't know, uh, we can pick like Milwaukee. Just I don't even know if they're there or not, but just randomly. They want to expand to Milwaukee. Well, they're going to hire all the drivers they can. And they're going to say, look, we're going to pay you to be available to everyone Friday, Saturday, like on weekends when it's demand is high. And then we're going to go and have a big advertising campaign saying, Uber is now available in Milwaukee. Give it a shot. And if you live in Milwaukee and you try it and, and an Uber comes to you in like two minutes, you're going to love this. You're going to start using Uber. But if there's no supply there and you're like, well, there's nobody there, then you're never going to come back. So that's the first thing. It's like, which side drives which side? Really understanding that and how that evolves and how that changes and so on and so forth. And then the second big thing is, which, what is the intrinsic defensible value of the marketplace? For example, you talked about Airbnb. Like, there is a lot of value in having Airbnb as a marketplace because as a host, you worry about that somebody's going to come in and mess up with your house. Well, it's okay because Airbnb has insurance. <laughs> and that's cool because if somebody comes in and puts fire to your house, you're covered. Well, I know that's a small example, but it's a super big example. It's actually one of the huge reasons of the Airbnb success. And then the other kind of big piece is they say, oh, well, don't worry. Like, we're going to make sure that when you're a host and you're actually interested in listing your place, we're going to send a professional photographer so that your house is represented in the best possible way. Oh, good, because that takes away all the pressure where I have to be the one, you know, representing my house and I, I'm not a good photographer, so I'm going to be at a disadvantage. Or if, you know, from the guest perspective, well, but is this room really the way it looks? Well, it was, you know, the picture was taken by a professional photographer, so I don't, I don't need to doubt that, right? So that, that's the kind of thing that the platform itself creates that adds value that is unique to the platform and it's sustainable and it's differentiated. That's really important. So that's, that's um, you know, you were asking me about network effect and the marketplace. That, that's, that's what's driving it and how do you create a unique sustainable advantage in the platform. And then the third thing uh, that's really important is once you understand which side is driving the marketplace, then you have to create a viral element for it. And there are two kinds of viral loops. One is a viral loop that is about inviting people. Hey, you should really try this because it's cool. And then there's another kind of viral loop, which is about sharing. Hey, I just hosted my first you know, guest on Airbnb and look how great I am. And you have to find the right place to create those viral loops. I want to transition a little bit into some of your investments and how you got into investing, because you have a killer background as an entrepreneur and clearly as someone who is getting sales happening. But how did you get into the investor role? Yeah, that's really interesting. I started investing about a decade ago. And really felt that I was basically spreading my wings and having more impact by helping people in multiple companies than picking one and sticking with it, just, just one, right? So then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, when I spread my wings across multiple companies rather than pick one, I have a bigger impact. 
So how do I do that? And there are three ways that I know to do that. One is, and I tried all three, uh, one is you become a, a thought leader. So you write a book. That's the book you see here, the yellow book in the background. You write a book and then you go give talks and your impact as a speaker or thought leader this way is actually extremely limited. It's fun. I mean, I love being on stage. I give a lot of keynotes and I really like it. And I have many talks and I renew that. But you have a limited impact when you do that. The second way you can have an impact is by consulting. And again, you have a very limited impact when you consult. You're basically a work for hire. So depending on what format you use, you know, you can be like a consultant by the hour, you can do workshops, you can whatever, you know, you can be a C-level in interim, uh, you can be a work for hire, it doesn't matter. But your impact is still extremely limited. It's great when you're early in your career because you do many, many things, but in fact, you have absolutely no sort of ownership of things. And at some point in your career, it becomes more important than anything. And, th and so the, the, the last way you're actually able to have a real impact is by investing. And trust me, when you write your first check, it's not, you know, it's tough. And not just the first one, <laughs> but that is actually how you really learn to decide what matters to you. I, there's no better way to manage your priorities than to invest. Like, would I put money into this? If the answer is no, yes. If the answer is not yes, then you shouldn't put any time into it either. What's your thesis? Our thesis. So our thesis is we invest in companies that are building products that count. And that means we invest later stage when we maximize the value of what we can bring to the companies and we invest for money. We invest to make a profit. And I know that it sounds like, oh, this is all about the money. And you know what? Like, yes, it is. And the reason it's important is that this is what an entrepreneur needs from an investor. If an entrepreneur is going to be successful, And, and trust me, like there's all this like, oh, but I'm doing this because I want to change the world. Yes, of course. And, and so do I. You know, I, I wouldn't be doing all the things that I'm doing and having this foundation if I didn't want to change the world. But if you want to change the world in the sense of create great value in the world, actually, I, I have learned that the best way to measure value is, is return on investment, is money. And so our, our, our entrepreneurs are expecting that from us, that we're going to hold them accountable to that and make them tremendously successful. So products that count, that's kind of a thesis and not a thesis. Break down a little bit more. What do you like to focus on? Right. So we have a balanced portfolio, actually. We invest mostly in software and not, not so much hardware. Mostly in software that's like enterprise, like CRM type software, infrastructure software, and health. So why is that? Okay, so I'll give you the, the lofty thesis, right? My expertise is mobile. I, I've built mobile services for a really long time, and I think we're now in the, in the third phase of mobile. The first one was put a phone in every hand. The second was collect data about everybody and everyone. And now we're in the third phase, which is now that you have that devices and data, do something useful. Right? And do something useful is disrupt the enterprise, not just the, the consumer layer of you know, our economy and our, and our, and our uh, civilization, but the enterprise layer, the complex one, right? And health. And as you do that, you're going to need to disrupt your infrastructure as well because concerns of regulation and privacy and firewall and optimization of resources and memory and so on and so forth are going to require 
an upgrade in your infrastructure software. Blockchain? Yes, blockchain is something that I'm actively watching, but not necessarily yet investing. Why? Because, you know, I see that what we're looking at right now, like there was a first phase a few years ago that ended with um, Monga, the, the fallout there. That was kind of the, the Friendster era of blockchain. Now we're in the MySpace era of blockchain. The next phase will be the Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Snap, so on and so forth era. So that's where I'm going to place my bets <laughs> I think we're still, as an investor. I think we still have even further to go. It's so, it's so early. It's so interesting. It's so disruptive. It's one of those things. At the same time, it's a massive bubble right now. It's got to pop before it can fix itself. But um, mm -hmm. it's a very interesting, interesting space. I want to jump into the lightning round. How's that sound, SC? Sure, and that sounds great. Which is like the most gangster nickname ever, by the way. What's up? What's the first deal you ever did? <laughs> What's the first deal I ever did? Mm -hmm. Well, besides investing in, in my own company, I invested in a friend's company that was a mobile messaging firm, which did really, really well, but is now struggling to exit. Oh, yeah? What company? Tango. Tango. Okay, I like the name. I like it. What, uh, what are you excited about today? What gets you wired? What I'm excited about investing-wise, you mean? Take that or one, one as investing and one as life. So investing-wise, right now, I'm looking at a couple of deals in genetic data, which I found pretty cool and pretty disruptive because it's at that intersection between mobility or connected devices and, you know, as humans. And that's a lot of what my book is about. And then personally, I don't know, I'm, I'm about to start rehearsing for my... My rock band. I'm pretty excited about Ooh, that. Rock band. What a. What, <laughs> what do you play? We play uh, Led Zeppelin. We play Fergie. We play okay. many things. We're a cover band. Amateur. The red hair makes a lot more sense now with the crazy rocker look. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's very cool. Very diversified in terms of skill sets as well. Give me your two biggest investment wins to date, personally or as a firm. Also, it's very hard to find information about your investments as a firm. It's very well hidden. We are pretty private about that right now. We are investors in uh, Airbnb, which I'm pretty psyched about, and also in a Series C company called Amplitude, which is an analytics company that's killing it. It's funded by Benchmark and a bunch of other awesome VCs that we've co-invested with. That's awesome. How early were you guys in Airbnb? I'm sorry? Well, what round were you guys in for Airbnb? Oh, we, we got in relatively late, unfortunately. It happens, but at the same time, in my opinion, Airbnb will trump Uber in terms of valuation in the next couple of years. But um, that's awesome. What's um, anti-portfolio? Who's some of the biggest companies you've missed? We have missed Lyft multiple times, Ooh. which is a shame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, we have missed, what else did we miss? Yeah, Lyft is the, the most recent one that I'm bummed about. It happens. At the same time, if you don't have strikeouts, it means you're not in the right game anyways. But, um, Give me, a, give me a bold prediction. Next 10 years, something contrary and most people aren't thinking. Well, a lot of people are talking about AI these days, and I, I don't see that being a massive thing in the next 10 years. I think there's still ways to go before there's that zero to one jump in AI. So I think we'll make a lot of progress and we'll have you know, smarter robots but I think AI is a, is a very, very far out prediction. General intelligence or just applied programs? Applied programs, actually both. Okay. 
But we better hope so, because we certainly don't have the AGI planned out quite yet. But um, pop, blogs, podcasts, etc. What are you reading on a daily, weekly basis to stay informed? Yes, I do read a lot. I, I read a lot of books and I read a lot of newsletters. Uh, books, I tend to read like crazy heavy reads. So my latest read is On China by Henry Kissinger, which is a uh, is foundational 800-page book. And yes, Kissinger can be controversial, but his analysis of the the power of China and the dynamic between you know China, Europe, U.S. and the world is is brilliant. Another book that I have loved recently is uh, Capital by a guy called Thomas Piketty, who talks about inequalities in the world, which I think is um, going to be a huge driver for the next 10 years. So these are the kinds of books that I like to read. Of course, I also consume, you know, whatever is uh, new and hot in, you know, management section, like the, the Malcolm Gladwell and so on. And then in terms of newsletters, I I read Seth Godin every morning. I also like to read some of my fellow VC blogs, uh, both Sides of the Table, Felt Thoughts. I also read uh, Andrew Chen regularly. I'm a huge fan. And and a few other of the, the typical kind of tech bloggers. Pretty good list. I like Andrew Chen especially because there's no fluff posts. Every single one is a killer post. That's right. Give me a, a productivity hack. What does your morning look like? What's something you do that other people find funny that makes you um? So something that I do in the morning, like uh, my routine. Yeah, your routine or some kind of special secret or something where everyone's laughing because, I don't know, you're doing something weird with your feet and it's helping you concentrate. I don't know. Some kind of weird little productivity hack. I have a trick to manage my passwords. What's the trick? <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful. Tricks are I fun. have... Um, it works really well, actually. It's um, I have a, a key, like five, six characters that are always the same and have like an uppercase, a number, an exclamation mark, and so on. And I use when I whenever I uh, sign up for a new service, I put that key plus the first three letters of the website as my password. And so I have different passwords for everything, but it's uh, very easy to memorize. If any hackers are listening, then you guys can figure out the password. You just have to brute force a six-character password. So, I see. I want to. I want to jump back to you for a sec. What um? What's one theme, one topic we haven't talked about that you think we should have covered? One thing you'd like to leave people with? You know, one one um one piece of advice for entrepreneurs, uh, having walked in the shoes of entrepreneurs, is um think of um be be on the sides of your investors, like. Think of them as people who are going to be helping you succeed. And the reason I say that is when you do this, you actually start thinking about who you want as investors really differently rather than sort of make it a, just give me your money and let me run with it, which if you do that, you're hoping you'll get enough is sort of the mindset. If you think of your investors are people as people who are going to help you be successful, then all of a sudden they're like an extension of your team and they're going to help you not just with their money, but also with ways that you can grow your revenue and, and therefore be, you know, successful as an entrepreneur. So that would be, you know, one, one big thing. It's going to basically shift your perception from a, you know, an adversarial serial one to a collaborative one, which means that you'll most likely get your pick of investor. And that's a good situation to be in. 
Yeah, especially because when the incentives are always completely aligned until, I mean, you can get into some bad situations. But at the same time, you both basically want the same thing. You want a massive outcome exactly. that's awesome. And if you figure out a way to make that happen, then everybody's happy. Exactly. Essie, I know you're super busy. Where's the best place for people to reach out to you and say, hey, you're awesome? Thanks. Uh, thanks for the mentioning that. The, the best way to reach me is goes through my website, as, uh, mo, uh, mighty capital, the, mighty dot capital, M-I-G-H-T-Y dot capital. And if you want to drop me a note, sc at mighty dot capital. And of course, guys, we'll have links to everything in the show notes. If you want to check those out, hop on over to the syndicate where we have incredible interviews with people like SC, Esther Dyson, Gil Pancina. Thanks for coming on today, SC. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And unfortunately for you guys, we said her name before the program. It's not going to be aired. That's going to be the secret sauce. Reach out to reach out to SC if you guys are interested in learning more user acquisition. You've got an incredible startup, Series A to Series C type level. Or what about if people want to get involved with the uh, Making Awesome Products group that you were talking about? Yes, go to our website and, and subscribe to our newsletter, www.productsthatcount.com. Awesome. We will talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. And thanks, Essie. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.